This is a podcast from ABC Radio Overnights. I'm Rod Quinn. Amor Tolls is my favourite modern novelist. His first book, Rules of Civility, was the best new book I've read in decades. His next, A Gentleman in Moscow, was a bestseller, and his latest book is an incredible adventure, The Lincoln Highway. When someone asked me what the book was about, I began by saying that it was about two brothers trying to get from Nebraska to California to see their mother, until that's not what the book is about at all. Amor Tolls can tell us more about it. Amor, welcome to the program and thank you so much for your time. Uh, Nice to be on the show, Rod. Thanks for having me. You wrote the book. If somebody asks you what it's about, what do you say? (laughs) Yeah, um, it's not that different than what you say. You know, but often what I'll do is is start by saying that in advance of the book's beginning, a young uh, Midwesterner uh, goes to a county fair with his little brother. A bully picks a fight with him. He punches the bully. The bully falls back, hits his head, and dies. And as a result, our hero, Emmett Watson, is sent to a juvenile work facility for 18 months. This happens before the book begins. But the book opens as the warden is taking Emmett home, having completed his sentence. Emmett's father has died while he's in prison, and his, his mother is long gone. And the warden says, uh, you've paid your debt to society. You're an honorable young man. What happened was a freak accident. So you should prepare to start your life fresh. And Emmett says that's exactly his intention. He's going to get his brother and head west, as you say, but unbeknownst to Emmett, there are two friends from the work farm hidden in the trunk of the warden's car. And when the warden drives off, they present themselves with a very different vision of how Emmett should spend his future, at least in the near term. And from there, everything starts to go awry. So it is kind of, as you say, sort of an, uh, it opens with one ambition and quickly gets veered off uh, into a, a collective uh, bit of chaos. And Emmett quite literally wants to rebuild his life. He wants to build houses. That's his life. That's how he sees himself building his future, isn't it? That's right. An aspect of the book is Emmett, Duchess, and Willie. Duchess and Willie being the two other uh, members of the inmates who have hidden in the trunk of the car. All three are about 18 years old. And all three are grappling uh, to varying degrees with how they were raised, uh, the, the model that their parents set, and the decisions of whether or not to replicate what their parents uh, have done or to reject, in a way, what their parents have done, as we all kind of face that decision when we're mm-hmm. at that age of 18. And for Emmett, his father was a romantic figure who came from a fine family in Boston, moved to the Midwest in order to be a farmer in the Emersonian tradition and basically failed at the project. So Emmett is a young man. The one thing he knows for sure is he does not want to be a farmer. And so he has uh, gone into town as a teenager and gotten work uh, as a carpenter. And his vision is, yes, is to build houses and to repair houses, knowing that that's a much less fickle business than uh, the business of, of raising corn. This is a long book. It's nearly 600 pages long. Did you actually set out to write a book that long? Did you think, well, this is going to be a book that tells the story of a dozen people at least. It's going to need to be 576 pages long? I I did not. And and in fact, The Gentleman in Moscow, the the book that preceded The Lincoln Highway, as I think many of your listeners know, is the story of an aristocrat who's sentenced to house arrest in a fine hotel in Russia during the Soviet era. And that book spans 
30 years. And I knew in, in setting out to write that book that it was going to be a long one because it was going to sweep into it an array of elements of culture, a, a vast spread of time, the changing historic landscape in, in Russia, and the evolution of the character and his his friends and uh, and enemies. Uh, so I knew that was going to be a long book. When I decided I was going to write The Lincoln Highway next, knowing that it was a story of 18-year-old boys in, in the 50s in a story that was going to last only 10 days, and that was always the intention, I thought, oh yeah, this will be an easy one. You know, this will be probably half the length of A Gentleman of Moscow, just sort of a 10-day jaunt. But as you're suggesting, as I got I plan my books. So I, I, I design them over a period of years. I outline them carefully long before I, I start chapter one. So I knew all the events that were going to happen in the story. What I didn't realize during the design phase was how deeply I would go into the group of characters. When I, when I designed the book initially, my, my intention was to tell the story from two perspectives. Emmett, our hero, and Duchess, one of the two young men in the trunk of the car who is a, a New Yorker from a tougher background, uh, sort of the son of a failed performer slash con man slash drinker. And, uh, and, and it was the story was going to go back and forth between these two perspectives over the 10 days. But once I really got into the writing process uh, for the book, it became clear that it was important for the reader to hear some of the other voices. And what I ended up with is a story told from eight perspectives. And so just as you imply, I started thinking, oh, yeah, sure, this is going to be a book of you know, maybe 220 pages. And But as the various characters made claim mm. on their territory, the, the book grew in scale and you know, still remained as a 10-day story, but one where I think you have a much more nuanced and rich sense of you know, not simply this pair, but of a whole self-ensemble of characters and what they're going through, uh, how that moment in their life is similar and how it differs people from different parts of America, people with uh, you know, different backgrounds. It became a, a, a larger tale, in, I think, in a way that serves the reader well. The story that is of Emmett, and Emmett is, in a sense, I suppose, the main character. It's his coming right. home that it sets the, uh, the, the story in motion. That's told from the third person. Everyone else, their view is told from the first person. How do you make that decision? Why not make Emmett telling his story in the first person the same as all the other people telling their story? Out of the eight people, three actually six are in the third person okay. and two are in the first person. In a way, I'm, I'm proud that you would make a leap uh, to saying that because when I write in the third person, for those who read A Gentleman in Moscow, they, they know this about me. It's very often a third person, which is really an extension of a character's intelligence. So while A Gentleman in Moscow is in the third person, it is clear in reading it that you are reading his perspective, what he sees uh, you're, you're hearing his vocabulary, his prejudices, for better or worse, uh, his foibles, his sense of humor, his sentiments. That's all in the language of the narration. Uh, so it's definitely not an omniscient narrator. And it's similar here in, in that when we are in the Woolly chapters, it's third person, but it's really an extension of Woolly's consciousness, as it is with Billy or as it is with uh, Ulysses. And, and so I like the idea that you might read that and walk away with an impression that it was first person because, because you are in the mind of that character, even though it says he, instead of I, mm. um, you know, how did I end up with Emmett in the third person and Duchess in the first, it kind of goes back to what I was saying before, which is that my original plan was it was gonna be just the two of them. And it seemed very natural to divide the story in that way. 
to give the reader a sense of a sort of a different tone as you shifted from one character to the other. But in a way, more importantly, it really suited their personalities in, in, for me in that Emmett is a practical Midwesterner. In the United States, the Midwestern personality is of its own sort. And you know, you, your, your listeners may have a sense of that, or you may have your own version of this in, in Australia. But the Midwest in America, this vast area of plains uh, that was really frontier I mean, 150 years ago, was populated, therefore, by people who went into the frontier, you know, built farms, ranches from scratch, lived miles from their neighbors, lived 50 miles from a physician, uh, and you know, had rough lives in the winter and that sort of thing. The the personality that kind of grew out of that is one that is very stoic, practical. Uh, they're good neighbors. You know, in in the Midwest in the 19th century, your life depended on being a good neighbor because you would need your neighbor at some time. Whereas in New York City, at the same time, your life depended upon being suspicious of your neighbor. You know, because you're all crammed in together and and you you ought to be careful. So it is they are different personalities. And uh, and Emmett. This practical, stoic uh, observer who kind of sees the world without flourishes, it made sense to me to tell him in the third person. Again, an extension of his personality, but it's a relatively reserved personality. Whereas Duchess, the child of a Shakespearean actor, a failed Shakespearean actor, who was raised among failed performers and, you know, very sort of uh, bright figures and flawed figures, it felt very natural for me that he would be in a first person because he would be just gushing all the time, telling you one thing, you know, one story or another, one exaggeration or another, charming you, uh, you know, if you were in his company. And so, so very often the decision for me is more like, is more about what sounds right. It's, it's not certainly not based on any kind of sort of rule I perceived, mm-hmm. perceive of having to follow in the realm of narrative. So I was going to ask you about Midwesterners. Because there's a line at the end of The Great Gatsby where Nick Carraway, the narrator of that story, he talks about, well, we were all Midwesterners. And they were Midwesterners who went to New York and had this incredible adventure. So not only him, but Gatsby and uh, Tom Buchanan uh, as well came from the Midwest. And that reminded me a little bit, I suppose, of Rules of Civility, which is a a book that is very much like Gatsby in a way. And yet here we have these Midwesterners in the Lincoln Highway. Yes. Yeah. So what is, you know, uh, well, you know, my father was raised in St. Louis and so, which is in the Midwest, uh, right on the Mississippi, off the Mississippi river. And um, so maybe that's an aspect of it. Cause I would go as a child to see my, my grandmother every year and, and have a, a sense of the Midwestern ethos coming down through that tradition. One thing I sort of discovered in, in the aftermath of writing this book is that when I had finished it, it suddenly occurred to me that the characters in the story who are 18 and it's set in 1954, that my father was probably 18 around that time. Mm. And, I, and so I went back and did the math and sure enough, he was exactly 18 in 1954. It made me sort of aware of the, the fact that we, all of us, whether in Australia, the United States, anywhere, we are very shaped by the time in our life between the age of six and 16 what's going on in the world, what the cultural landscape is, the political landscape, the economic landscape. It's very formative in how we become adults and and view the world in the future and navigate the world. But I think that we're almost as influenced by the decade in which our parents came of age, because that period when our parents were six to 16, that cultural landscape, that economic landscape shaped them dramatically. Mm -hmm. And they raised us under that shadow or with that light or however you want to put it. Um, So, you know, if you had a a parent who was, you know, born during the depression, you were taught to save string, you know, even though there was string everywhere, you know, (laughs) because they, that ethos of, of 
being careful with your resources that came out of the depression, they then teach to their children. And, and through that, through their stories, through their behavior, we have a window on this decade that we never witnessed in person. So for me, the kind of, and it's kind of, ge- there's a geographic version of that too. If you were raised in New York by Southern parents, you would have a strong sense of the South, even though you spent little time there because it was being passed to you in the form of of stories, behavior, mm. uh, a particular type of etiquette, um, a particular view of the world. And, and so, yeah, so it's very natural for me to kind of sweep the Midwest into New York, as you've pointed out in, in two books, because of that, uh, I think, because of inheriting a little bit of it from my father. Something else that is formative in people's lives could be a long road trip when they are younger. I, I think back to Bruce Springsteen's autobiography and that road trip he takes from New Jersey to California is an important part of his autobiography and an important part of his life informing his love of the road and cars and driving and that sort of thing. Did you have a formative road trip that has somehow informed this book? I did. Uh, I mean, a little bit like Springsteen. Uh, his script. I was not in a band, um, but I drove across the country at the age of 19, drove across on the northern route and back on the southern route uh, in a period of weeks, um, which I think a lot of young Americans do. And Australians may do, too. You know, we, we obviously share a lot as two cultures. I think we probably I think the Australian culture is as close to the American culture as, as, as any in the, in the world, partly because we share this big landscape um, that uh, that in each case is relatively young. Uh, and in, in each case was developed in, as a frontier, in essence. Um, so, I, you know, I, I wouldn't be surprised if Australians have that sort of uh, part of their, their lives that where you go out and, you know, and see the country as being a part of, of coming of age. And that, that is certainly true in America, and it's certainly true on the road. Um, I, I think, though, the two is that, the, the, you know, the journey story is almost as old as, uh, as, as we have as narrative in Western culture, right? If we go back, uh, the Odyssey is a journey story, the Greek epic. The Aeneid is a journey story, the, the great Roman epic. Um, and, you know, even Oedipus, the Sophocles' play opens on the road where Oedipus, you know, is encountering a, a stranger in the road and, and bad things come from that. The journey is a, is a, is a very longstanding uh, trope because, of course, it it is an example of it's a physical motion as you're going through space, but it's, it's a metaphor for how we evolve as people. And so it's very sort of natural to tie those two things together in storytelling. And I think that the road is also very compelling because it can mean different things. On the one hand, it can mean going home. You know, it can represent sort of the journey home. And that's what the Odyssey is about. Ulysses has won the Trojan War, and what he really wants to do is get back to his wife and child. And it takes him 10 years to make this incredible excursion. Um, but all he wants to do is go home to what's familiar, to what's safe, to what's comfortable. And the Aeneid, however, it's the opposite. Aeneas is just, he's a Trojan. His city has been destroyed. His family has been destroyed. His kingdom has been destroyed. And he is, the road for him is to go find something brand new and to start something from scratch. And uh, and he founds Rome at the end of the Aeneid. Whereas Oedipus is kind of this different version of the road story where it's not so much where he's going or where he's been. It's what happens on the road itself. You know, the fateful encounter where he meets a man, they fight, he kills him. And of course, it turns out to be his father, you know, later on. And as you know, and, and by the way, you, that's not a spoiler. You I was going to say spoiler alert, but it was written thousands of years ago. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think we should all, you should know what happened to Oedipus by now. <laughs> um, but, uh, but so, but at any rate, 
the point being that the, the road can be these different things. And, and so uh, in the course of the Lincoln Highway, I think in retrospect, all three of those are there. The story of Emmett is very much, as we've talked about, about starting fresh. His father's died. The farm has failed. And all he wants to do is go to a new place, build a new life with his younger brother um, and start from scratch. Whereas Wooly, who's sort of a tragic figure in the story and was raised in sort of a wealthy family in the East Coast and in uh, he misses his childhood and he and his his family is kind of becoming falling apart a little bit for him the road is is to go home he wants to go home to again like Ulysses to what is comfortable and familiar to his past as it were whereas Duchess is kind of like Oedipus things are going to happen on the road fateful encounters uh, that affect lives uh, in, a, in a fateful way and and, and you know so so that's kind of the, what the road is for him so yes I think the road can, the journey and the road can be all these things and uh, and, and so it's a, it's a fun metaphor to work with so was it too obvious to have a character called Ulysses? Why did you make that choice? Yeah, so the, there is a character, uh, the uh, Emmett and Billy, while headed east on a train, encounter an, uh, a black American veteran uh, who is in sort of middle age and who has been traveling the, the train on the rails alone for ever since the Second World War. He was absolved from having to fight in the war because he had a, a critical job, but he decides to enlist anyway. And his wife says, listen, if you go to war and I have, we have this brand new child, don't expect me to be here when you get back. And when he comes back from the war, she, in fact, has left with the child. And he goes and starts riding the trains in a state of, of guilty loneliness or lonely guiltiness or however you want to say it. And so when Billy, this young boy who's eight, Emmett's younger brother, meets Ulysses. Billy carries with him a book at all times of, of 26, the story of 26 different heroes, sort of a compendium of heroes, starting with A, Achilles, and ending with Z, Zorro, sort of 26 uh, alphabetically arranged stories of, of heroes from both myth and from, from real life, people like Abraham Lincoln and George Washington, too, sort of a boy's adventure book. And he's read it many, many times. And one of those characters that is covered is the myth of Ulysses. And when he encounters this middle-aged, you know, black American veteran, uh, sort of a tough and, and lonely figure, uh, they sort of get in a tangle, as it were, because Billy says, I think I know who you were named for, having discovered that, that he went to war, that he went to war overseas, that he abandoned a wife and child. I think I know who you were named for. And the uh, African-American says, well, yeah, of course, everybody knows who I was named for. I was named for Ulysses Grant, the general who freed the slaves under Abraham Lincoln. And Billy says, no, 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 no. I think you were named for the great Ulysses, who went to war reluctantly and left behind his wife and child, and, but who eventually was reunited with him. And through this kind of misunderstanding, almost, of uh, this, sort of this one word, Ulysses, who has played two narrative roles in Western hit culture, and they have kind of two different visions of who Ulysses is, they actually meet. They share stories back and forth and become, they become almost reliant upon each other and, and uh, close friends. And I, and I like that, how uh, in real life as well, through some kind of common story, we can make connections, even though we may be people of very different backgrounds and races and ages. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and, and that's what's happening between those two characters. In fact, on more than one occasion, Ulysses saves Billy in kind of yeah. a deus ex machina situation. Was that, again, a little too obvious, or is that just the way things happen? I think it's more the, I, well, I don't think it's too obvious, but but I guess that's up for the readers to decide. Uh, but I, I hope that it unfolds in a way that that makes sense and that feels right. But, you know, I, I'm, I don't mind a, the, to stretch reality a little bit. Um, that's what reality's you know, like. Reality does get stretched. I mean, I think that's, you know, and it's funny, when 
when Rules of Civility came out, there's a number of of coincidental encounters in the book, yes. you know, where people run into each other. And I remember, you know, a critic or whatever saying, oh, well, you know, it's full of these coincidences. And that's true in a kind of a Dickensian way. But on the other hand, I've lived in New York for 25 years and they happen every day. They do. You know, you, you, you know you're, you're walking in Midtown and suddenly you bump into a, a college friend or you are uh, you know, out to dinner with your wife and your ex-girlfriend is at a table, you know, three tables away. That's part of the nature of living in a city, right? And that yeah. these things happen. So on the one hand, in, the, in a narrative, they almost seem more fantastic than they do in real life when they occur because it's a part of, of daily life. And I think that it, when you have characters on the road or whatever, uh, people are going to intervene. You are at danger from one person. Another person might provide you salvation, whether that's to give you a gallon of gas when you need it or mm-hmm. to uh, you know, give you a place to stay or, or to intervene in a, if there's a, a, you know, a, yes. a moment of violence. Uh, you know, those things happen, too. I'm always intrigued by character names in novels because they are deliberately chosen. It's not accidental. In the Lincoln Highway, you've got Emmett, Billy, Sally, Ulysses, Duchess, Woolly. They're the main characters. They all have double letters in their names. Is that accidental? Is it deliberate? Does it mean anything? I love that you've observed that. I have, I have no idea what that means, Rod, but I, it must mean something. I have not been asked that. I have not thought about it. So this is off the top of my head. But I think in the, in the you think about the mid 50, or think about the 1950s in America, there was a great sort of, I call it the rush to conformity, which is that in the, in the early part of the 20th century, American life, particularly on the East Coast, was very ethnically diverse, but also relatively segregated. And I don't just mean black and white. I mean that, you know, Little Italy in New York is where the Italians lived, and Chinatown is where the Chinese lived. And uh, the Hasidic section of the Lower East Side is where, you know, the, the Orthodox Jews lived. And and in those neighborhoods, very often the la- their, their, their old language was spoken, the restaurants served their old food. So the cultures, in a way, were preserved. These immigrant cultures, they were all immigrant cultures, of course, were preserved over generations. And the war really changed that. The Second World War in the United States, the battalions were built from people from all walks of life, with the exception of the Black population. Everybody else was thrown together. And when they returned after the war and were given uh, the chance to go to college for free on the GI Bill, many of them had no desire to go back to Little Italy, Chinatown, you know, whatever neighborhood that they were raised in. They, d- they didn't want to talk in the old language anymore. They, didn't, uh, they wanted to eat American food, speak in American accent, send their children to you know, a, a school in the suburbs. They want to live in the suburbs. And there was sort of this big uh, as I say, a rush to conformity. They wanted to be just become Americans and that's what they were. And they, they had earned the right to be known as simply Americans by their service in the war and by the relationships they formed during the war. And, uh, and it really changed the shape of American society. And then, of course, you had an economic boom that helped. The reason I say all this is that I often have thought of the fact that during that era, you went from calling your child a potentially ethnic name, you know, Antonio or mm-hmm. you know, whatever, to being, you know, Andy. So there was a lot of stripping down of names to really kind of common schoolhouse, two-syllable, end-on-a-Y nicknames, you know, Bobby, yes. Billy, you know, Tommy. These Joey. were very common names. And I, and I don't think it's a coincidence. I think it was that it was, as I say, this moment in society where everybody wanted their kids just to be American kids. 
And, and that was one way of doing it. So I suppose that may be a, a, an aspect of it too. And if you think of that semantically, when you go from, you know, William to Billy or from Thomas to Tommy or, you know, all these things, you often get that, as you say, the double consonant in the Y is often the, uh, how you do that from Gerald to Jerry. And, uh, you know, so, so I get, yeah, so that I, that's probably not a coincidence, although thank you, I'd never thought of it. Okay. Something else that's a, a major part of the book is counting from one to 10. Taking yes. your time, count from one to 10 before you act. There are 10 days. The story unfolds over basically 10 chapters as well. But brilliantly, it doesn't start with chapter one and go to chapter 10. It starts with chapter 10 and goes to chapter one. You're kind of counting down. When you're reading the book, you know how close you are to the end. Why yes. that decision as well? Was that the reason? Well, so it, it, the the background of that is, is uh, that when I started writing the book, and as again, I design it for a couple of years, I outline it for a year, and then I'm writing uh, in the outline, the 10 sections, the 10 days were known as day one, day two, day three, day four. And that's the way it was written in the manuscript. And when I got to the midpoint of the story, I felt that uh, it, it wasn't going very well. Suddenly, uh, I felt that there were parts that were going in the wrong direction or were cumbersome or dull, uh, that the actions of the characters were getting confused, their motivations were, were getting uh, mixed up or, or uh, messy. And so you have this sort of moment, 40, 50% of the way through the book of just suddenly loss of faith, you know, as it were. And when that happens, you, you want to kind of take a step back and dwell on it to see, is there a way that you can salvage this? I've done a lot of thinking in advance. So I know the story is going to be fine if I can figure out what's gone wrong in the midpoint. So, and now's the time to figure that out. You don't want to wait till the end. So I took a step back and what ended up happening is that you, you sometimes you have this sort of moment, this little small revelation that helps. And in this case, it was the one you're describing which is that I suddenly thought to myself, you know, this story is not day one, day two, day three, day four. This story is actually 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. You know, that's really what it is. And for the reasons that you implied, is it is a story about, you know, in essence, rushing towards a, uh, a fateful moment, running out of time, you know, the, a, a countdown uh, implicit in that. And, and I love that a countdown in Western tradition can mean, uh, you know, it's what we do when a heavyweight in a heavyweight boxing match mm. to determine that the fight is over. It's what we do before a rocket launches, yes. you know, the sort of the, before the launch. So it's the and at New Year's Eve. You tell me, you know, when we count down to New Year's Eve, is that the end of the year or the beginning of the year? It's <laughs> both. Right. So I kind of like that. And, and what I did then is I went back to page one. And with this sort of in sort of in mind, sort of, and I went back and I changed day one to the word ten, and I changed day two to the word nine, and I began revising from the beginning with the spirit of the countdown in mind, and kind of remembering at all times we are moving towards this faithful moment. There is a sense of a clock ticking. Uh, there is potentially a rocket launch or a, a, the end of a, of a boxing match going to be at the end of this, at the end of this count, and um, and and that really helped me to reorganize a little bit. I mean, the events still happen in the same order chronologically, but to edit, to sharpen, to clean up the motivations, the language, the events, uh, and I think making it, although you say it's a long book, not to feel like as long as long a book as it is. It does not feel long at all. I could not put it down. I wanted to find out. And that's also one of your incredible achievements here is 
planning those chapters, knowing when to leave certain characters and going off and seeing what other people are doing in other parts of the country, and leaving your readers hanging, wanting to know what happened to the people they're leaving, but at the same time desperate to find out what's happened to the people they're about to rejoin. Yes, well, thank you. And I'm, I'm glad it worked out you know, that way. And, and I think that, that was uh, one of the most challenging aspects of designing the book, of writing the book, is to, when you're telling a story from eight perspectives, uh, you're asking a lot of the reader. And, uh, you, and you're taking a certain risk because if the eight different perspectives start to merge together or two get confused and, uh, you know, or the events become unclear, it, it's, it's, it's more burden than it's worth. And so I, I think a lot of time had to be invested in making sure that the reader kind of constantly knows where they are and that the tone of the eight different sections is so is different enough that when you shift from Emmett to Duchess, you know you've made the shift, and you and you immediately are back. Oh yeah, I'm back with him now, and mm-hmm. uh, and, and you can kind of get yourself up to date, and then as you say, rush back to Emmett to find out what's happening to him. And um, and, and I, so I think I think when it works, it's it's a very uh, it can be very electric as a, a reading experience, and you know, and that's what I hope ends yeah. up happening for the reader. Something else that is unusual for a novel is that there's a photograph in it. And it's a photo oh, yeah. of New York City when I think a, a, an alarm has been sounded or there's a test to make sure that everybody's all right or everyone has to yes. be off the street. Now, why aren't there more photos in novels? It's <laughs> a good question, Rod. I, you know, and, and I, I had, there was some, as you'll, call, as you'll recall, there's some photos at the center of, of Rules of Civility. Yes. I don't mind a little illustration. There was a map at the front of a gentleman in Moscow, there's a map at the front of the Lincoln Highway. And I think sort of from my childhood, I always sort of loved that, you know, when you open a book, book as a child and there's the map before you begin your story. Um, there's something very exciting about that. And, and, and I think that, that yes, I, I don't mind weaving a photograph or two into a narrative uh, in the same way that I may reference a novel uh, in the course of the narrative. I may re- reference a historical event. I may reference a piece of music and, and, and describe it. And so to bring in sort of these different artifacts from culture that particularly, I mean, if they belong in the story, they can, they can kind of open doors in the story of an interesting type for the reader. In this case, sort of a, 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 sort of a funny aspect of the, of the picture you're describing is that I, I don't research my work before I start a novel. I don't do research. I don't pick a topic, research it and write a book. I will pick a topic that is grounded in an arena that I'm, I've, I've been interested in for a long time. In, I was interested in Russia for a long time as a fan of the culture. And that's what I based my Gentleman Moscow writing in process on, is, is that knowledge. And then when I was done with the Gentleman Moscow, I did some applied research. Um, same thing here with the Lincoln Highway. I invented the book in totality, wrote the first draft, and at the end, did some research, kind of go back and check some things. And, and I, don't, I don't know what the purpose is. But, but so here's an example. I finished the first draft and I decided, OK, the whole story takes place over 10 days in June of 1954. Maybe it'd be interesting to go back and look at the front page of the New York Times in each of those 10 days. And so I did that. I went back and got the 10 newspapers and looked at the front pages, June 12 to June 21, 1954. And on the third day, uh, and, and there was a lot of stuff there that you would anticipate. Uh, and that is kind of in the backdrop of the story, not in the foreground. Things like, uh, you know, it's it's the midst of the Cold War. So uh, this is when McCarthyism is going on in the United States. All kinds of negotiations are going on with Russia. It's the beginning of the CIA's involvement in Latin America. 
there was a coup that occurred, you know, during that week. Um, so there's all these kind of things that are sort of natural to the, uh, the times as we look back and we kind of remember that. There's the early stages of trouble in Asia because the French are trying to figure out whether or not to stay in Vietnam and fight the war, and they're going to. Um, and America's observing from a distance for the time being. Uh, so, you know, all that's kind of in the front pages. And But one thing that occurs is on the third day of this 10-day stretch, the Times announces that tomorrow there will be the first national simulation of a nuclear attack in the United States, assumption of an attack in 40 American cities where for 10 minutes, all activity will stop. And I was like, what are you talking about? That's the craziest thing I've ever heard. And so I quickly flipped to the next day and, and sure enough, there is the article describing this event. The federal government wanted to test readiness and communications and whether or not civilians would be go crazy or, or, or be willing to go down to bomb shelters and wait, uh, and whether that could be organized in office buildings. And so they chose New York City as one of the 40 locales. And they said, okay, there's going to be a nuclear bomb coming in, and we are going to alert the public. And it was all you know, told in advance. At a particular hour, the, the alarms will go off, and you, you will usher, you will go to your basements and you know, under your desk or whatever. But there can be nobody in the streets, no activity, no phone calls, no radio transfers, nothing. And, and that's what happened. And they, on top of the article on the front page of the Times was a picture of Times Square empty, but for a single police officer. And I was like, wow, this is an amazing event. And then I was like, well, you know, I've got the first draft. And my immediate instinct was, I want to weave this into the story. The characters aren't going to show up in Times Square in the midst of the thing, which would be in a way too much. It's such a crazy moment in American history. I want it to be recognized. And so one of the characters does what I did. He, he's reading newspapers from the previous couple of days, and he encounters the story. Mm. And he sees the picture. And then you have a moment as the author, as where I was, I was kind of the, the character was describing the picture uh, for the benefit of the reader. And then I was like, why wouldn't I just include the picture? You know, because it's this crazy thing. And that's what I chose to do. Now, I should just say, as, a, as an aside, the Lincoln Highway, which is the, the, the road... It's a real road. It was the first highway to cross the United States from the Atlantic to the Pacific. It was built around 1915 by a private citizen uh, for raising money in the public for public benefit so that Americans could cross the country in their cars and see the country. That's what the Lincoln Highway is. And, uh, and it's what the kids drive on, on their way east. And it's in a way a metaphor of the, uh, in, in the book, uh, an important metaphor in the book. Mm. Well, the Lincoln Highway starts in Times Square. Yeah. So that was sort of part of this incredible coincidence that uh, that this event, this picture in the New York Times from this 10-day period, 1954, would be about Times Square when, when the Lincoln Highway itself begins in Times Square. And I knew that the characters were going to have to go to Times Square as a part of the story. I find it remarkable that I don't know about the Lincoln Highway, and I didn't know about it until I read your book, that we know yeah. about Route 66, you know, which winds yeah. from Chicago to LA. But here we go, one from one side of the country from new york city the heart of new york city times square to san francisco why isn't it better known why isn't it as celebrated as route 66 is it as simple as that no one wrote a song about it yeah well you know and, and first of all you're absolutely right and by the way that's not just you know for australians that 99 of americans don't know what it is and the history there is that uh when carl fisher who was the entrepreneur who built it built it in 1914-15. At that time, the federal government was not involved in roads in the United States at all. And the reason that Fisher had to build it is because all roads in America at that time spiderwebbed out from local centers. You know, you'd have a, a town or a city with a train depot and the mail, a post office and the banks, 
and the shops, and then roads would kind of spider out from there towards the farms and and, and what have you, and uh, you know our manufacturing facilities. And um, but the roads weren't designed uh, in the 19th century to go long distances uh, from say city to city. There was no road from Boston to Denver, you know, which would be you know a 2,000 mile journey. The trains did that. So, you know, in the early stages of the car, when the car was first coming of age, there was no real means of by to drive long distances. Uh, it was very onerous to do so. And that's why Fisher decided to do this. And when he built it uh, at the time, in 1915, only 20 people would cross America in a given year in car, mm-hmm. only 20. Extraordinary. And once he built the highway, 20,000 per year were doing it by 1920. And by 1920, it was the most famous road in America without question. But almost the success of the road got the federal government interested. And the federal government began saying, okay, this is clear that there are going to be roads that connect the entire nation. People and freight are going to be moving, not just on trains, but on and by car. And we need to be more actively involved. And so they invented at that stage, sort of in the 20s and 30s, the number system, which didn't exist in America yet. And they went out and created Route 66. And then they decided, okay, well, we're, we're going to have a route that's going from New York to San Francisco. And they, in essence, took over the Lincoln Highway and f- called it Route 30 in some legs or routes, you know, uh, Route 38 in different legs. And, and the name Lincoln Highway disappeared. But then what happened is in the 1950s, the federal government realized that the roads that existed were not sufficient to really support a modern economy or modern defense. And Suddenly, they went back and there was a major effort to build an interstate highway system, which are you know, four-lane roads, you know, three, lane, three lanes going in each direction, you know, no traffic lights, uh, you know, gas stations every 50 miles kind of thing. And, uh, and that was built in the 50s. And when that was built, the old highways like Lincoln Highway and to some degree Route 66 disappeared as, uh, or became obsolete. And so the, the Lincoln Highway really faded into the background of memory. And that's sort of one of the reasons I like it so much as a metaphor in the story, because here was this, you know, American entrepreneur who was born with nothing, built it really for the benefit of patriotism, uh, you know, and, and, and no profit. Um, and then, you know, it, it dominated culture and then sort of slowly faded. And you can still drive it from New York to San Francisco. And in fact, in Times Square, there is still a sign which shows the beginning of the Lincoln Highway, all, even though nobody knows what it is. And that road has got one lane going in either direction and is through farmland and past very small towns. It's very rural, Um, you know, and so it's a long way to cross the country, but a very beautiful one. And uh, and so, yeah, that's that's kind of the history of the highway. Have you driven the Lincoln Highway? I've driven the length that the the young men in the book drive, uh, because they only, as you've pointed out, go east. They intend to go west, but they end up going east. And when I was finished with the first draft, I flew out to Nebraska, got in a car, started in the small town that uh, that Emmett's town is based on and began driving east on the Lincoln Highway uh, towards New York City. So, yes, I did do that. 1954 is so important in this book. It's just before rock and roll hits. I'm wondering, what are they listening to on the radio as they drive along? I know one of the characters loves commercials rather than the actual programs. Yes, yes, But yes. if it had been maybe two years later, three years later, they would have been listening to something completely different. The music would have driven the story, wouldn't it? Yes. And I, I, you know, I think a lot about that. Uh, you know, 1954 it was always my instinct to set the story in the mid fifties. And th- what makes mid fifties interesting in the United States is that it is a moment of, it's almost a little bit of a moment of an oasis in that it's a time of peace. 
because the Korean War is over, Second World War is over, Korean War is over, and Vietnam is just beginning to ramp up in the smallest way. And but so it's really a time of peace. It's a time of economic prosperity. Uh, you know, the suburbs are being built on the surface. It appears to be going. Things are going well, and it's sort of uh, culturally stable. And but what's happening though in 1954 is it's all about to change. And, and the seeds for the, those major changes are very much already in the soil in that the modern civil rights movement is about to begin in 1954, because 1954 is when the Supreme Court in the decision of Brown versus the Board of Education mm-hmm. outlawed segregation. And the entire South had to desegregate under force of law. And you had and created Rosa Parks refusing to give up her seat on the bus and young men yeah. taking you know, uh, young black men refusing to give up their seats at lunch counters and protests, violence, Martin Luther King, the rise of Martin Luther King. Emmett Till as well. Yes, exactly. That's all coming out of, of the mid-50s. Uh, the sexual revolution is beginning in the mid-50s, sort of getting a slow start with the launch of Playboy. Playboy comes out six months before this book begins. The, the Kinsey Report on Female Sexuality comes out, you know, sort of bringing discussions of sex into the public square. And then, of course, the pill is being developed at that time. And that's really going to take the lid off. Uh, feminism is on the rise, uh, you know, just beginning. So the, the, the 50s, coming out of the Second World War, there was this big, really kind of cultural effort to put women back in the house. This has been written about at great length in America, but women were in the workforce in the Second World War because they had to be. There was sort of recognition of the powers that be that you couldn't leave the women in the workforce as the young men were coming back because then they wouldn't have jobs and they might turn to violence or robbery or what have you. So they basically pushed the women back into the home. And there were all kinds of cultural means to try to encourage that in order to then give the young men uh, the jobs. And uh, you get that kind of you know, vision of the perfect household of the 50s is, is the wife who's vacuuming in the morning and, you know, preparing a cocktail for her husband when he walks to the door and making dinner and getting the kids to go to school and all in a nice dress. That was a it was a real cultural movement for that. But there was already by the mid 50s rebellion rising against that. And by the 1960s, it would be in total, uh, you know, under total attack, appropriately so. So you have this sort of oasis in the 1950s where it seems like everything's great. But all of the uh, the dissatisfactions implicit in that time are just boiling, whether that's from race, class, gender, the anti-war movements are all kind of coming. And rock and roll is going to be the theme song for, for that era. Um, and that's beginning to. The character of Sally. I mean, she knows about feminism. She is feeling it within herself as well. And she's out in the middle of the country on a farm in the middle of the country. And she knows that there's more to life than just looking after her father on their farm. And that's a really strong scene in the book. Beyond music, I also, when I was reading the book, I was thinking of On the Road, I was thinking of In Cold Blood, I thought about The Catcher in the Rye. These are all books that fit very much in that same milieu as The Lincoln Highway. Is that right? That's true. And and what I will do when I'm going into a project is sort of in the years before, because it is a multi-year process for me, I will read a handful of books from the era, as it were. And so in advance of writing this book, you know, I went back and read Flannery O'Connor's A Good Man is Hard to Find, her collection, her great, her famous collection of short stories, which was her first, which came out in 1954. I read uh, James Baldwin's Go Tell It on the Mountain, 
I read Raymond Chandler's The Long Goodbye, Sloan Wilson's The Man in the Gray Flannel Suit. Fantastic. All, all four of these books were written within a 12-month time frame mm-hmm. in 1954. Most of them are set, basically, in the mid-50s. You know, they're, they're contemporary in that sense. They're about and a restlessness I, yeah, in America is what they're well, about. And, and that's what's interesting about it, because they're very... They're written by people from very different walks of life about very different moments, different places in America. You know, Chandler's writing about L.A. and Sloan Wilson's writing about, you know, the life of the Greenwich executive, yeah. you know, taking the train to Manhattan. Uh, James Baldwin's writing about the life in Harlem. And Flannery O'Connor's writing about the Deep South. And yet they share certain restlessness, as you say. And, and again, the political turbulence that's coming is kind of under the surface of those books. Yet none of those books are like my book. You know, and, and so that's that's a great process for me because it, it it stimulates sort of gives me a sense of time of zeitgeist without feeling like it's casting a shadow on my project. I read in the New York Times that you want to read all of Patrick White's works. Why Patrick White? Why are you interested oh, in him? <laughs> you're, you do very good research. I, I read uh, with three friends. We've been reading together for uh, 17 years now. And we read a book on, a month, a novel a month, and then meet to discuss it at length over a, a long dinner. But we work in the, on projects. So we will pick a topic and, and read a series of books around a theme uh, from a particular region from a particular moment in time, or by a particular author. And we'll work chronologically through the works of that author. And we, a couple of years ago, kind of launched a sort of a project where we began reading Nobel Prize winners outside of England and America, uh, who we didn't know their work. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we went back and you know, read Thomas Mann as a part of that process, uh, more fully than any of us had. We read uh, Nagub Mahfouz, the first Nobel Prize winner who wrote in Arabic in his incredible Cairo trilogy. And then we, we, we shifted to Patrick White, you know, the, obviously the, the, the Nobel, uh, Nobel Prize from Australia, and which very almost nobody in America reads. And it's been hugely satisfying. You know, we started with Tree of Man and then read Voss. Um, and we're now reading uh, the, the Chariot. Uh, Riders uh, in the, the Chariot. Thank you. Riders in the Chariot. We've just started that. And um, the four of us were all, you know, have degrees in literature, basically, and we all write uh, as well. And uh, it was unanimous, you know, reading The Tree of Man, that, you know, this was an extraordinary book and, and deserves far more attention in the United States than, than it currently gets. Um, it was very thrilling in a way to read. Might I also recommend David Marr's biography of Patrick White, and indeed Patrick White's autobiography, Flaws in the Glass, how does it feel as an author, knowing how many people love your work, and especially when a president like Barack Obama puts a gentleman in Moscow on his reading list, and then on the Today Show, Jenna Bush, who is the daughter of a president, she is raving about your book. She's giving everybody a copy of it. She's making sure everybody on that program reads it, and she goes and sees you as well. How does that make you feel? What does it do to your sales as well? Oh, well, I mean, it's, it's certainly good for commerce. I, I've wanted to write since I was a kid, as we said, and uh, and I had a. We didn't talk about this. We don't need to go into it much. But I, I when I moved to New York, I ended up in the investment business, and I spent twenty years in the investment business. And uh, for the first ten years of that, I stopped writing fiction, even though it's all I wanted to do since I was a child. And I had written fiction in high school and in graduate school, college. I had some short stories published in my early twenties, um, but then suddenly I got off distracted or got off into this other phase of my life. And, and, but I knew while I was doing that, that if I didn't get back and start writing fiction, I would be, you know, very miserable, bitter, disappointed with myself as an older person. 
I spent seven years writing a book in my mid thirties while I had the job that I didn't like. And I set that aside and I learned a lot from that. And then I wrote rules of civility. And when rules of civility became a bestseller, I retired from my career in investing and, and began writing full time. And then a gentleman in Moscow, now the Lincoln highway. And the b- best thing I could say to you about it is, you know, going back to another rock and roll biography, you know, we, you mentioned uh, Bruce Springsteen's well, you know, in Keith Richards life, yes. uh, you know, which is a lot of fun. It's a great uh, a book. <laughs> he tells a story about being, I think he's in his 30s, and he's already, you know, he and the Stones are already world famous. And he and Jagger go back to the, to the town that they grew up in, you know, suburb, uh, a British suburb in London. And Richards is walking through town, and the, the young women who work in the, in the salon, the beauty salon, all pour out the door because they're all his old schoolmates. And they're like, Keith, Keith, oh my God, it's Keith, Keith. And uh, so he stops to talk to these old acquaintances. And one of them says, you know, oh my God, you know, Keith, uh, you're world famous, these giant crowds flying around on, you know, on a jet. Could you ever have imagined? And Keith responds, oh, I imagined it all. (laughs) Because I just didn't think it was going to happen. And, you know, and and as, as a young guitar player, right, you know, Keith playing in his living room, he imagined it all. He imagined being a worldwide famous rock star, um, but he just didn't think it was going to happen. In a way, that's what it's like for me. So so the fact that the books are successful and that people read it is, is I've imagined it all at some point in my <laughs> life, but I certainly didn't ever think it was going to happen. And, and, it's, and it's very satisfying, you know, to see it. And I must say that the satisfaction is not it's it's not the economics. It's not you know being on the bestseller list or something like that. The satisfaction is that in the modern day, if you go to amortolls.com and you go to the contact page, the email comes right to me. So every day I get feedback from readers around the world of their impressions of the work. So when someone takes the time to reach out and to describe a scene that mattered to them or an event in their lives that was in harmony with the book or some sort of moral insight or support that they gained from something a character said or did in the book or just an appreciation of the language, that is a deeply satisfying uh, thing. And, and, I, and I don't take it lightly. I mean, I, I'm a very lucky person to be in a position to receive that kind of communication. Overnights with Rod Quinn on ABC Radio.